let's pray as we come to this very exciting part of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you speak so clearly in ways that um, are varied, in ways that also that are very powerful, and you supplement um, those written words with uh, historical accounts that uh, can be tested. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the growth of the church and that we here in Sydney in the year 2022, are benefiting from this message that has spread. And so we we pray for your Spirit's help today. The Spirit who opened the eyes of uh, Cornelius will also open our eyes increasingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a friend who's the principal of a church school, a Christian school, and uh, as one who engages daily and enthusiastically with his world, he has to do that. Uh, He was a good example to me as someone inside the church um, suggesting the church really shouldn't have a fortress mentality when it comes to the world and notices that sometimes it can do that. Um, that, uh, that the church can sometimes sound to his ears as though it's anti-Jesus and anti-Christians, um, as though we're all followers of Richard Dawkins or something. The world is all against the church. But from his well-informed position, which deals with thousands of parents, he says many are actually quite open to Christianity and to Christian values. And if you need to be um, you know, given any demonstration of that, then the, the amount of fees people are paying to, to be in his schools and other schools is some testimony to that. People not from a Christian background, but wanting something that the schools are offering. And this view uh, of many seems, the, the view of many seems to be, well, I don't really have a great problem with Jesus or Christians. He's not... Um, you know, a threat to me. Um, I, I'm quite happy for him to, to be your God or for you to follow him. He's just not overly relevant to me in my busy life. And so inviting someone to church can feel like it, perhaps inviting someone to the Robin Hood Club or to Joan of Arc Club or a Gandhi Club, where we might learn some good lessons, but I've also got a life to live and there's only so many things I can pursue. I, but you know, besides, I also already live a, a pretty moral life without organised religion. I've got yoga, I've got positive attitude development that I do, I, I've got some good friendships. And I can have a pretty good life if I avoid the worst of things that life throws at me by staying healthy and having some financial security. And so the answer to what is Jesus to you, that great question, what is Jesus to you, will be so varied in the world. It's not always going to be hostile. It's going to be more a question of relevance. What is Jesus' relevance to you? That will be the biggest question for many. I find that helpful to know as I you know, live in the world. So let's see how Jesus himself answers that question. He does so really clearly for us in Acts chapter 10. What's Jesus to the world? What's his relevance? Well, you recall from Acts chapter 9, Saul was commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, the Lord, went, Jesus, when transforming Saul, said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, all the nations. And it seems in the book of Acts that we're moving from Jews, or not just seems, this is what's happening, it's moving from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and we're going towards the ends of the earth. So why are we coming back to Peter, the apostle, when we've moved from Peter to Paul already? Why is Peter being brought back on stage? Why are we being shown at the end of chapter 9 that it's Peter now doing 
great works and healing people in Jesus' name. I take it it's because as the gospel is about to reach and, and break out into Gentile hearts and Gentile lands, Jesus brings attention back to Peter, the rock, the chosen one, the first among equals of the apostles, the credible appointed link between Jesus and the church, the one who the church trusts as representing what Jesus wants in the world. And what does Jesus want? Jesus wants the world to know my people are not national Israel. And that should have been pretty clear by the end of the gospel when Jesus is really getting into the the heads of national Israel and saying you're really off track, you need to repent and he's turning tables and he's cursing Jerusalem. Jesus, from this week forwards, wants it broadcast that heaven's gate is open to the nations, including Jews. Peter's one of them, Saul's another. But not Jews above others anymore. No second-tier nations. Jesus renamed Simeon Peter, Petros, meaning rock, the rock upon which I will build my church. He's done that for the Jews who've become Christians, and now he's using Peter the rock as a foundation for the church of Gentiles. He's the holder of the keys of heaven. Use your keys, Peter. Open the gate. What you say is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. What you say is loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That is, you understand the way to the kingdom, and it's for you to declare that and help the church to understand my ways. Tell the world of my availability. Tell the world of my supreme relevance. Not only for Israel, but tell the world I've come for them. The word orchestration comes to mind when reading Acts chapter 10. It's like a careful film director with characters who don't even realise they're fulfilling the story as God goes about organising things. In verses 1 to 8, we start in Cornelius' house. He's not a Jew, I take it he's not circumcised, but he's a centurion in an Italian regiment who has a high esteem for Israel's law. He and his family are described, verse 2, as devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. All our works are filthy rags. That's not how God sees everything. Even those who may not have bent the knee to Jesus yet. It's too simplistic. God responds to Cornelius' trusting actions, his prayerfulness and sacrificial gestures. He's somewhere on the way to knowing God personally. He's a prayerful person. And so we get those clues as to where he stands with God, but not a, a clear statement. But it's while he was praying, verse 50, uh, will later tell us, Cornelius was confronted by a fearsome divine messenger. He, likes, like Saul, calls Sir or Lord. It's that same word again that Saul used. The messenger's identity isn't given here. But in the second half of verse 4, we read, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. God is accepting what Cornelius has been offering. And then he's told to summon Simon Peter, the Jew, sending two servants and a soldier to get him. So the camera now moves from, um, takes us from Cornelius in Caesarea, a coastal town, to Peter. Uh, sorry, Peter's on the coastal town, Uh, Cornelius is in Caesarea. 
And now this is about 50 kilometres away, so that doesn't seem so long to our ears with cars, but it's about from here to Stanwell Park. That's a, it's a decent walk away, and it's, it takes a couple of days. What's Peter going to do, uh, doing on the roof when God engages him? Remember Cornelius was praying when God entered his world. We see, too, that Peter is up on the roof, verse 9, to pray. It's like a cooking show where God has worked through Cornelius, who was praying, to do big things in his little world. And now that goes on the back burner, and Peter's now coming to the front. What's Peter doing in order for God to work through him? He's up on the roof praying as well. As Jesus would have us expect, action happens not so much in a certain place as in a certain activity. Prayer is where the action is, so often in the book of Acts. God's kind, powerful salvation activity goes hand in hand with prayer. It seems so ordinary, doesn't it, when we pray? Uh, Yesterday at a prayer breakfast here at church, it was just a small group. It doesn't seem like anything much is happening. And yet we're assured God is answering our prayers. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, there might be six or seven or eight of us, maybe ten of us, but what if those six, seven, eight or ten turned into 60, 70, 80 or 100? And I say this not to induce guilt, but a, a realistic reflection that it may be there's enormous potential for growth in our church if we really began to pray together. And it would be a great thing for us to address this year. Well, every day at 3 p.m. was a Jewish time of prayer. In Australian culture, 3 o'clock in the afternoon might be more a smoko time or a vape, whatever we have these days, or maybe just a caffeine hit. But in the Jewish mind, 3 o'clock was prayer time. That's a, that's a good thing to take on, isn't it? It's not in the law, but it was in their customs. We don't know what they were praying, Peter or Cornelius, but we see God do dramatic things in response. As Cornelius' men are walking towards Peter, Peter is given a vision, verse 11. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now one author wrote, This list of animals seems calculated to cause disgust for the Jew. Um, a distressing list for the diet. And, I mean, I think it would be one thing for activists who are really pressing that we don't eat meat, but another thing for Peter the Jew, and so he responds in verse 14, Surely not, Lord. You're not really suggesting I eat these things. I've never eaten anything common, uh, impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure, whether food or people, Peter, I take it. He's thinking uh, food, God's thinking people that God has made clean. This happened three times, a familiar number for Peter when he's learning important lessons from the Lord, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And so we have Peter here, while Peter's thinking, what on earth's going on? Some Gentiles in God's precise timing are about to knock on his gate. Peter's now ready to do what he wouldn't have dreamed of moments before they got to his gate, sharing his meals with them, sharing a home with them, and journeying with these Gentiles. 
But God has so arranged it, and so go this unlikely group of ten men to Caesarea. And so this section ends with a sense of anticipation. Cornelius has his friends there. A friends, a large group we read, that are eagerly waiting for this message. Verse 24. And Cornelius says in verse 30, because of this chain of miracles, here you are and here we are, God has brought us all together for something big, intriguing, marvellous, mysterious. To use Cornelius' own words from verse 33, he says, So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Uh, Later in chapter 11, verse 14, we'll read that the angel actually said more than that to Peter, uh, to Cornelius. He said, this messenger Peter, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So the relevance rating for a God-fearing man, it's extreme. This man's going to bring salvation to you and to your household. Now, I'm a member down at Palace Cinemas in Leichhardt, and I like to have some fresh popcorn, I like to have a refreshing drink, I like to have a comfy cinema, and I like that moment when the movie's just about to start. You think, yes, everything's good in life. Well, compared to this, that's nothing. This is not Hollywood. Here we have a divine messenger from someone who fears God, who's just been met with an angel, and he knows something big's about to happen. Right here, right now, in our lounge room, God's bringing a messenger to address us and even to save us. You know, we get used to things as Christians. We get pretty familiar with things. But this happens every Sunday when we gather, every home group when we come together, when we open our Bibles each morning to see what God has to say to us. Um, I've had friends recently say, I love a church how we just are in the Bible and we feel like God is addressing us, and that's wonderful. A few weeks ago, when I wasn't preaching, I was sitting in the church thinking the same thing. What a privilege to read God's word together, to address our awesome God in prayer together, to hear his word explained and applied into our lives, to sing in response, not to the walls, and not merely to encourage each other, though that's good, but in the presence of the living God in response to him, the one we have an audience with, we who are his audience as well, the one who loves his people and loves the praises we offer. And so we can come into this building and right now have a sense of anticipation. We can say something very similar to Cornelius in verse 33. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has to tell us. What a great learning posture that is. I've written this verse down actually in the front of my little... um, folder here. It's a good one for me to remember that here we are in the presence of God to listen to what the Lord would say to us. That's why in Reformed churches, the pulpit is put front and centre rather than an altar or something else, the pulpit, so that the word of God is front and centre because Christ himself, the head of the church, is going to address the church through his word. But we haven't even got to the message yet that they're all gathering to hear. What is the movie? What is the message? What's the popcorn for? What's the reason for engaging the famous apostle Peter to come to us as the guest speaker? God brings Peter without a script. I'm not sure Peter even knew what he was going to say. He had more questions than answers. But all of the pieces in God's kindness are now coming together 
at the perfect time as Peter prepares to speak. Listen to Peter explain from verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, partiality, the word of a judge, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. People like Cornelius. I don't really mind what nation he's from. He trusts me. He reveres my word. And for Peter, the penny has just dropped. I take it at the end of the Gospels when Peter was told that the gospel will go out to all nations. Peter probably assumed it's the Jews of all nations. He's realizing this gospel is actually for the whole world. Jesus' teachings making more sense now. Cornelius, this God-fearing Gentile, and realizing he's not a second-rate child of God. The sheet with the food on it, the common food. God declaring clean the people we'd call unclean. Jesus' love for both the Jews and the Gentiles, it's all making sense. Right back to Abraham, who has promised that the blessing will go to all nations through the seed of Abraham, through Jesus. And so this crowd is aware of the Jesus story. Peter can start with the words, you know, verse 36, and you know, verse 37. They knew at least up until his death. He stopped saying that at the resurrection. I'm not sure if they knew that yet. But you know the message, literally the word God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened through the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all, notice, all who are under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. So far, this incredible story, again, that we're very familiar with as as seasoned Christians, perhaps, if that's you, is a compressed version of the gospel that Peter will have a a big impact in, in forming. But later there isn't... Uh, So far, there isn't particularly anything new about it. What's new about this is the implication, the relevance of this message. It's of what comes next in verses 42 to 43. This is where it's all been heading. And the point of it is that Jesus is bigger than Israel. Peter's been thinking of Jesus as Israel's great teacher, Israel's eternal king. But it's much bigger and better than that, Peter. The scope of Jesus' relevance is universal. A relevance that embraces the world. Look with me at verses 42 to 43. He, the Lord Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people. That word people there often refers to the nations. And to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of whom? The priests? No. The Israelites? No. He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Now, if you think about it, that's a really broad category. There there isn't a way that category could be much broader. It's everybody. And so even if we were able to do a global roll call this morning, uh, reaching every city, reaching every cave, reaching every nomadic tribe, it still wouldn't be enough to sense Jesus' relevance, to capture all those people and speak of him. That's only the living that we're reaching. Jesus is supremely relevant 
Because again, verse 43, here's the one God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. What's Jesus to the world? Whether they know it or not, whether they are still alive or not, Jesus is everything to all people. What they make of him is what they make of the judge who separates God's friends, the forgiven, from our well-meaning but unforgiven friends. That's big. There was creation. Then there was the fall, this fallen world that we currently endure. After this comes one of two things. Either creation fall and judged by the risen Jesus to fall further and forever, or it's creation and fall in order to be saved by Jesus and lifted up as we rise with him, the resurrected Lord. The resurrection of Jesus and the relevance of Jesus is supreme and absolute, it's eternal, it's urgent. And so I rejoice that people are coming into these schools and hearing the gospel where there's a freedom for the Christian message to be in it. And we have a number of people in our congregation working in schools like that. I rejoice that the public schools in New South Wales still allow the gospel to come in, for this to be shared, the relevance of Jesus, even though society might wonder at his relevance. God says that Jesus determines the eternal destiny of the living and the dead. This is so whether we, the media, or Joe Bloggs agrees or not. And so while Jesus might seem comparable with Robin Hood or Pilates or a beach house or a good psychologist, by those who don't understand, this error is to displace God from God's place. Every ideology, every philosophy is at the same time a theology, a statement of what we make of God. God will be placed somewhere by everybody and everybody will be placed somewhere by God. Those who reject him, actively or passively, are rejecting their judge. No idea. They're rejecting their judge when they reject this message of Jesus. But it gets worse than that. They're also rejecting their saviour, their only hope out of that judgment. Can you see, friends, the relevance of Jesus? No wonder Billy Graham knew he had something to say to the world. No wonder he said with unmistakable conviction to millions of people throughout Russia, China, Africa, Australia, the US, that Jesus is the world's Lord, a message and a messenger which reached city after city around our world and each followed by months of prayer asking God to act to save. Now you and I are not Billy Graham, but you have got a message that your friends Your family, your neighbours need to hear. Have your friends yet sensed the relevance of Jesus for them from you? Will you give them that blessing, that opportunity, that chance? Peter finally assures them that he didn't make this good news of forgiveness and salvation up. The Jews are sceptical, chapter 11, as we'll see next week. But all of this was foretold not just in one or two of the prophets, but all the prophets, Peter says, centuries before Christ's birth. God had all of this prescripted, just as he had these last few days prescripted. Look there in verse 43. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him 
not just the Jews, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The coming one saves any repentant sinner from a most permanent fall. Believe in him. That's the key message, verse 43, for us today. Believe in him. Ask for and receive the forgiveness he offers for your sins. Now, I might be preaching to the choir here. I might be preaching to everyone converted. But I do want to say, if there are any here who haven't yet done that or aren't sure if you've done that, come and talk with me or a friend that you trust here. And to the many of us who have received Jesus' forgiveness, perhaps long ago, I ask you for a moment to think, who are people in your life who are a bit like Cornelius? Or a bit like Cornelius' family and friends? Wanting to have a good life, wanting to live well, not realising they're opposed to God, but assuming they're on God's side already with the way they're living. Someone you might welcome to come alongside you, to walk with them towards God. Open to you as a friend who realise that your motivation is good for them. A good listener who might be ready to boldly make a statement or a question after listening to them for some time. Thanks for sharing with me that you've been really anxious. Is it okay if I share with you where I go when I'm feeling anxious? Not many people are going to knock that back but we might not have that just that little bit of boldness that gets us into that conversation. Finally, to show that God had indeed welcomed this repentant Gentile into his kingdom, the episode concludes. While Peter was still speaking these words, God's not leaving them in any doubt. This gospel is powerful. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. That shows their assumptions, doesn't it? That they're so astonished about something we take for granted. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. This is not a proof text for a Pentecostal church to say all Christians should be able to speak in tongues. This is another divine and uh, special moment where God is showing his fingerprints on this situation. Yes, they've received the Holy Spirit, and I'll show you they've received the Holy Spirit because they'll speak in languages they couldn't previously speak just a moment ago. Then Peter said, verse 47, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. That commandment of Jesus in the Great Commission, be baptized. Now that's going to reach the Gentiles. And it will reach DPC as well. For they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. He ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Those last words again might seem insignificant, but Peter can now, with a clear conscience, live under one roof, saved by the one Lord, share meals, Jew and Gentile, as the one Christian church. That's a massive development. And we see it here right in Acts 10. Well, let's come before God in prayer. Our great God, we thank you for the sending of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the world's Saviour and Judge. 
judge and saviour, the living and the dead. We thank you that you offer forgiveness and a time to seek that forgiveness, the time to call on that saviour is while we live. That time is now. And Father, I pray you would do that great work of salvation in us and through us. Father, we commit friends to you that might have come to mind today. We pray that you would give them an openness, that the work of your Spirit would be preparing them to hear the gospel. And at the very same time, even today, you would be preparing us to be your messengers that would bring that light of the gospel into their darkness. Forgive us for seeing Jesus as something less than essential, absolutely vital for every human soul. And we pray that that wouldn't be the case for the rest of our days, that we'd see the world differently and we'd see the relevance and power of the Lord Jesus differently as well. Uh, Father, we pray you'd bring people out of the woodwork as you have in recent weeks, uh, people coming to our, our congregations with a hunger to know you. We pray that might increase all the more and we'd be ready to receive and to embrace and to share you with them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.